0: Many years ago, back when our children were just little wee bairns, uh, and I was in seminary, we did Revolutionary War Reenacting, LARPing, live action role play. Uh, We were members of the North Carolina Highland Regiment, which was a uh, Loyalist regiment attached to the British Army. Uh, It has has this historical record on the eastern side of North Carolina, where uh, my Scottish ancestors came from. Uh, And uh, we were at one of the big battles uh, reenacting the Battle of Camden, which, of course, was a a defeat for the, uh, well, in that case, for, from our standpoint, the bad guys, uh, the Americans in that situation. If you ever been to that battlefield, it's actually a, a, a nice location. It's worth a field trip. There's a beautiful home up on top of a hill and the British side of the forces were camped on the top. And then down at the bottom, the colonial American forces were tapped and there was a big ravine in between the two. And we were there and we we're camping out, sleeping on hay in the tents, eating the, the food and fighting in the battle. And uh, our outfit, our uniform was a blue jacket. ...with a Scottish kilt and red check hose and a bonnet. And you can see the bonnet that I wore it's, uh, in my study right under the uh, Scottish shield up on the wall. And my children with me, at this time the, the littlest one was a baby... ...but they had the other three children and we were milling around and talking to folks and visiting. And I turned around and all of a sudden uh, my youngest son at that time... ...well, the, the second of the youngest son, McBride, was gone. He was missing. Has this ever happened to you parents? I turned around and he was not there and there were people everywhere. So I grabbed the other two, and we went on a search. And we saw people that are in our regiment, have you seen McBride? And one of them said, we think he's down in the uh, headquarters building. So we go running in there. I open up the doors of this large downtown uh, downstairs room. There's this huge table with a map of the battlefield. The colonial American officers are in blue are on one side. The British officers uh, in red are on the other side. And there's McBride in the middle checking out the map. <laughs> you know? And I said, why have you treated us so? And he looked at me as if to say, why would I not be with the officers of my great cause? Well, Mary and Joseph experienced something like that as well, and something that uh, all parents can relate to at some particular point in time. uh, As we're going to see in Luke chapter 2, verses 39 through 52, uh, where we have a situation here where Jesus, uh, uh, we have a, a, a little scene from his childhood. It's the only scene we have from his childhood. So you ask to ask yourself the question, why does Luke include this? Well, obviously, he thought it was important. So it's my desire today for us to look at this account of Jesus growing up in Luke chapter 2 verses 39 through 52 and that help us to better understand the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we look to this great passage, this historical passage That Luke went to so much effort to to leave behind. And I pray through the power of the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that inspired him to write these these inspired words would open up our hearts, pour truth into them and help us to be more in love with Jesus than ever. As a result of this wonderful passage today, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Again, if you would turn to Luke chapter two, verses thirty nine through fifty two. And of course, the. uh, uh, we're going to look at three different uh, points here, and you might find your home group helps insert of assistance to you. Uh, they're not of equal length here. We see here Jesus as a child in verses 39 through 40, Jesus at the age of 12 in verses 51 through, uh, 41 through 51, and Jesus as a young adult in verse 52. And let me begin here, first of all, with Jesus as a child in verse 39, God says, Dr. Luke writes, and when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom and the favor of God was upon him. So Luke didn't feel it necessary to write the accounts uh, that Matthew gave us, accounts of uh, the the, uh, visit of the Magi and the flight of Egypt. He probably assumed that people had already known that, having Matthew's account already. Uh, And we know from Matthew's account that this actually didn't occur until after Herod's death, where Joseph and Mary felt safe to return to Nazareth. And we just have this summary point here. The child grew and became strong and filled with wisdom. And one thing that's important to understand is sometimes we so emphasize the deity of Christ that we de-emphasize the humanity of Christ and commit theological error. And this text will help us to understand some of what it is. Jesus Christ, though he was sinless, he had a real human body. He had mind. He had emotions. He was incomplete and had the same kind of inherent weaknesses that come with being a human. Now, unlike us, his intellect, his uh, his physique, everything else was unsullied by total depravity. He was sinless. Nevertheless, Jesus had to learn. He had to learn sometimes the things the, the hard way, the difficult way. He grew up as a regular child, grew up in many, many ways. Hebrews 5 tells us that uh, he, Jesus learned obedience from the things which he suffered. One commentator says this, his development was unhindered by depravity and thus his his intellect advanced to his full capacity. He was never lazy, but always uh, tried to learn as much as he could. He exercised good stewardship of his intellectual abilities, achieving the maximum potential of the human minds. And one of the things that you realize talking to Christians over the years, many of them inadvertently commit heresy by trying to explain uh, the, con- the the fact that Jesus is both human and divine. And let me just point out three wrong views in church history uh, that the 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 church councils have condemned, so that we don't fall into that same kind of error. This is uh, first uh, view is uh, Apollarianism. You're probably thinking, I bet he's going to mention Apollarianism. Uh, this was uh, Apollinarius uh, of last Laodicea, died around 390. This uh, heretical view was condemned in 381. And that is Jesus had a human body and sensitive human soul, but a, div- soul, but a divine mind and not a human rational mind. You know, so he, they, they accepted the physical part of Jesus's humanness, but not his mind. Well, he says that he grew and was filled with wisdom. Uh, then they have the uh, monophysite heresy. Uh, from the man named Euclides, uh, and basically that's, that uh, view was that Jesus was one person, clearly must have had only one nature, and the one nature was a blend of deity and humanity. But the Council of Chalcedon in 451 condemned this view, That if uh, his human nature had been uh, deified, it would no longer be human. If his divine nature had been humanized, it's no longer divine. Therefore, there's not a blending of the two natures in the person of Christ. Those two natures are distinct. Then you had Nestorianism by the theologian Nestorius. He taught the view of the two natures, that Christ's nature and the divine nature, then they also must be two persons and that was condemned, and again, in the Council of Chalcedon, that he was truly man and truly God. And Chalcedon came up with four negatives. And so often, as you see this in the law of God as well, it's easier to to um, border a view with the negatives of what is not than to try to explain what it is. Because frankly, there's a mystery here, a mystery to what we call the hypostatic union, the, the, the person of Jesus being both fully divine and fully human But the the four negatives of that great council uh, is basically they said that that Jesus is truly human, truly divine, having two natures, perfectly united. But, and here's the four negatives, without mixture, without confusion, without separation, or without division. The Athanasian Creed is a very uh, uh, helpful for this. The, the Athanasian Creed, along with the Apostles Creed, the Nicene Creed are some of the great creeds of the faith that all Christians affirm. We don't use the Athanasian Creed. We will, we will recite it on Trinity someday. Uh, it's, 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 it's fully biblical. It's uh, doctrinally very sound. It's also three pages long. So just from a practical standpoint, we tend to prefer the Nicene or the Apostles' Creed. But listen carefully to part of the Athanasian Creed that explains this. He, that is Jesus, is God from the essence of the Father, begotten before all time. And he is human from the essence of the Mother, born in time. Completely God, completely human. With a rational soul and human flesh, equal to the Father as regards divinity, less than the Father as regards to humanity. Although he is God and human, yet Christ is not two but one. He is one. However, not by his divinity being turned into flesh, but by God taking humanity to himself. He is one, certainly not by the blending of his essence, but by the unity of the person. For just as one human is both rational soul and flesh, so too the one Christ is both God and human. Okay? So you got that down now? <laughs> Don't go commit heresy. Uh, and, uh, and, and I think it, it warrants us looking at some of the doctrines here because as we look at the child of Jesus and it said of him that he grew and he grew in wisdom and he grew in stature, what does that mean? And hopefully that gives you a little bit of a sense, at least whets your appetite for what that does, man. But he grew in favor and the favor of God was upon him. Literally, you could translate that the grace of God was upon him. Now, did did Jesus need grace like you and I need grace? No, he did not need redemptive grace. He did not need salvation grace. He was sinless. So what this means is, is the blessing of God, as we see in Luke chapter 3, where God says that he, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. These verses, as one commentator says, testify to the physical, intellectual, spiritual, and relational development of the son of God. And this was pleasing to God the father here. And this principle is going to be repeated at the end of our text as well. William Hendrickson, who writes the complete commentary uh, on the New Testament, uh, uh, says this. The development of this child was therefore perfect, and this along every line, physical, intellectual, moral, spiritual. For from beginning to end, progress was unimpaired and unpeded, impeded by sin, whether inherited or acquired, between the child and Jesus and father. This was perfect harmony, harmony limitless love. And that fits into the situation, the episode that Luke points out here. But really, if you think about it, what would it like? What would it be like raising Jesus as your child? To have this, what would it be like to be his brother or sister? And he had brothers uh, and sisters. You know, firstborns are kind of a pain anyway. You know, but imagine having this perfect child to be the one that sets the pace for the rest of the household. Nevertheless. He still had to learn. He had to learn. There was a time when he didn't walk. There was a time when, uh, when, when uh, he didn't know left from right. There was a time when he couldn't read. All those things had to be taught him. Now we see here the, the main point of Luke's, uh, Luke's commentary here. Jesus at the age of 12 in verses 41 through 51. So that's all we have from Jesus to six weeks old to uh, age 12, is that first little uh, section there. Now we come to this larger part. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind at Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group Behold, your father and I have been searching for you into great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that was spoken to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up these things in her heart. So again, you've got the only incident of Jesus's childhood that goes between uh, the birth narratives that we have earlier and then his public ministry. These are also the only recorded words of Jesus in the first 30 years of his life. So you get the background story here. Jesus and his parents went up to the feast of the Passover again. Passover, if you were to put yourself in the sandals of folks at that time, it's sort of like a combination of Christmas, Thanksgiving and Fourth of July all in one. It was the height of the of, of the year for, for for the Jews. It was uh, and 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 the Jerusalem, which was already a sprawling city, would have been increased by a hundred to two hundred thousand pilgrims coming in to the Passover. Uh, they were supposed to uh, uh, take three different pilgrimages uh, to the temple during their uh, during the year. Exodus chapter twenty three says this: Three times a year you shall keep the feast to me. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. As I commanded you shall eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time at the month of Abib. And that time you came out of Egypt, none shall appear before me empty handed. So what happened here is because Passover was the major of the three feasts. And then the unleavened bread was associated with Passover. They all just kind of combined them into Passover. Travel became more difficult, perhaps. Uh, it was, uh, so most people would focus particularly on the Passover. So if you were going to go on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, it would probably be during the, the Passover. And he said here, we give a time marker. Luke is a, a great historian. It says when he was 12 years old, he went up and it was just their custom. So this was the custom of the family. Again, this really shows the piety of Joseph and Mary. They, had, they were committed to raising their, their child, their children... Uh, And by this point in time, there would have been other children as well uh, to worship the Lord, to understand the law of Moses, to train them in the scriptures and in how God wants to be worshipped. But it's especially significant, too, because of the age of Christ. At age 13, you become in Jewish tradition, a son of the covenant covenant. You see that today in today's bar mitzvah uh, uh, ceremony that Jews go through. So he was approaching that point in time. And the rabbi said that prior to that time, they should come and participate in the worship. But the Passover would have radically transformed Jerusalem at the time. Tens of thousands of new people coming in, people offering sacrifices. Instead of just one division of priests being on duty, all 24 priests were on duty. And they would, first of all, they would go through at night and they would take out all of the leaven. Uh, leaven being representative of sin that affects and causes the effect of sin to rise in the culture. They would take all the leaven. They would ceremonially burn it. And then they would have the sacrifice in the afternoon. They would blow the chauffeur, the, the, the horn, and they would co- collect all the people. And the people would bring their lambs. And they would just slaughter the lambs. And the, and the priest would line up and gather the blood and throw it to the base of the altar. And then Joseph would have taken their family land. And after it was slaughtered, he would have dressed it. And wrapped it up in its own in its own um, skin, and taken it back, and they would have roasted it that night somewhere. And they would have had the feast. They would have sang the Hillel songs and everything. This was just, again, this was Christmas to them. This was the height of their year. Uh, and it was uh, it was this wonderful custom that they all looked forward to as they went through this. So Jesus was allowed to be a part of this. Matter of fact, it is likely that he had a part of the ceremony as well. Exodus chapter 12 says this, when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people People of Israel and Egypt, when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. So they probably would have called on Jesus to start that whole ceremony. And it says here that, you know, that gives us an idea of what was happening at the time, but when the feast was ended, they were returning. They're going back to Nazareth. They took a week off. Well, it would have been more like two weeks off because the travel time was three or four days and traveled back as well. Uh, and uh, and they 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 didn't stay for just one day, as many people did. They stayed the entire eight days to celebrate the Passover. And the feast of unleavened bread. And then they go back in this caravan and they got confused. Now, again, if you've ever, if you've got children, don't judge Mary and Joseph too harshly. This can happen to the best of us. Um, one of my famous uh, uh, illustrations I've seen of this was I had a buddy. He's actually now the, the dean of students at uh, Columbia International University. I used to work with him when I was financial aid director. And he told the story of one time that his family was traveling to Florida and they were in their minivan and they stopped at an awful, no, Waffle House. And uh, they, they were, they'd gotten their food and everything. And he went to the bathroom when he came out and his parents were gone. And he said a, a state trooper, a highway patrolman, had just gotten off his ship, just had, ordered his food, just had this giant plate of food <laughs> placed in front of him. And he tugged on the trooper and says, My parents left me, and they're driving down to Florida without me. And he said, the man just sighed, pushed the plate away, come get in the car. The parents are tearing down Interstate 95. They're impervious to the fact that they left their child at the Waffle House. You know, that's not like leaving them on the altar of a Catholic church or something like that. So they get so they get pulled over the officers the, the dad's like, "What's going on, and then Rick gets out and gets into the van. You left something back at the waffle House. so again, we can be. Well, we'll judge them a little bit just because that's fun. But uh, let's not be too harsh with Mary and Joseph. But you basically had a caravan system. They would have gotten all the relatives, all their friends down in Nazareth. Some people would have stayed back for, that, to, to, for safety reasons and for the animals and that kind of thing. But they would have taken big caravans. They would have just come down in lines coming through Samaria. That would have been safer and it would have been a whole lot more fun. Do things in groups, right? So they go down this caravan. The women and the younger children tended to go first up front. The, bo- the, older men, the men and the older boys would go in the back. Well, where is Jesus now? He could be in either one of those two groups, right? So Mary is moving up, heading home, looking, thinking about all the things she's got to do when she gets there. Got the other little children with him, thinking Jesus is with Joseph. Joseph looks around, sees Jesus is not there, and thinks, oh, he's probably up there helping Mary, until they camp at night, and they can't find him anywhere. Can you imagine the panic? They they weren't going to Orlando. (laughs) They're hiking. They're camping. They're they're a a day out of Jerusalem. So they realize that he's not there. After five days, they they come back to the temple. So it takes another day to get back. They look for him after three days. They spent a day in Jerusalem. There was a day up, day back, and then a day in Jerusalem looking for him. And and, uh, where would he be? If you were going to start looking for Jesus, where would you start? We would have started the temple, right? That's not where they started. They started at a place where they stayed. They started their shops. They started at some friends' houses, whatever. They finally find him there at the temple. And he was sitting amongst the teachers. He was in this council of the great philosophers, the great professors of Judaism, and they're asking each other questions. And they were astonished as his answer. Where'd this kid come from? How did he learn this stuff? There, there was something about Jesus that at age eight, even at age 12, they could tell there was something different about him. So in a sense, Mary and Joseph come in. They kind of interrupt this situation right here. Uh, and, and Mary becomes a little indignant, doesn't she? She kind of tries to lay a guilt trip. Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and mother have been searching for you in great distress. Again, we are a little sympathetic here to what they've been going through. But one of the things you need to be clear on, Jesus, when we say Jesus was sinless, he was sinless here too. Even though he was a child, he did not commit sin. I think Kent Hughes does the best job of summarizing this. The point is, he was capable of unknowingly causing his parents distress, but as a sinless being. He was incapable of knowingly doing it. Here, Jesus unknowingly brought anxiety to Joseph and Mary. Moreover, he unintentionally caused his parents to worry because his 12-year-old mind was totally absorbed with the massive spiritual realization of his identity as the Messiah that had come to him that week. The combination of the authentic adolescence and the immensely absorbing revelation regarding his own person so occupied his mind that he did not imagine that staying in the temple would cause anyone alarm. Jesus did not sin in any of this. And this is this is, I think, why Luke included this is he wanted to show that even at age 12, Jesus was in love with God. He was consumed with being about his father's work. His calling was apparent to him. Now, his parents would have said, by the way, you're God. I mean, <laughs> or somehow they would have termed it that way. You know, the shepherds showed up the day you were born. Then we have these magi. Here's the little case of myrrh. You know, we still got the case of myrrh. Uh, you know, we had to flee to Egypt because, you know, because of you. All these kids got kids. I don't know what they told them, but they would have understood. But it, But you can tell from this text, too. It says they did not understand the saying that they spoke to him. They didn't fully understand these implications. And they may not have fully understood it until after the cross. Luke, as we go through this, if you'll stay here with us for a couple of years, as we go through this gospel, you're going to see this theme repeated that they don't really understand who Jesus is. He doesn't fit their expectations of what Messiah should be like. He certainly doesn't fit the expectations of what most 12-year-olds are like right i really i was tempted to call the gypsies every time one of my children turned 12 i said would you just you can't have them but you could have them for a couple of years until they you know stop being the way they are there's something happens to children when they get to that age. not jesus he just he couldn't get enough of god he couldn't get enough of worship he couldn't that's what he wanted he probably stayed up all night talking to these teachers about God and everything. So there's this passion that he has. That we see here. Again these are the first recorded words of Jesus. But here's the key to understanding this. Notice what Jesus says. He says. "What I not be about my father's house. Now that's a bigger deal. Than you may even know. My father's house. We get used to that kind of language. Because we were Christians. And the church has been using that kind of language. For 2000 years. But that was not the case in the Old Testament. Never in the Old Testament is God called my father. It's never that personal. It's always corporate. He is the father of Israel. But God is only called, in all those uh, books of the Old Testament, he's only called father 14 times. He is called father 60 times in the gospel. Do you see what happens? At the death of Jesus when he punt, when he sacrificed himself for your sins and that curtain tore in two we the children of God have access to God so he's no longer that father out there he is my father my father because your sin is forgiven this is an introduction to the incredible transformation that coming comes in knowing the person of Jesus Christ. And because he is my father. Your father. Our father. We ought to be like Jesus. Where he says in John 6.38. I have come down from heaven not to do my own will. But the will of him who sent me. John 8.29. And he who sent me is, is with me. He has not left me alone. For I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And John 5.17. Jesus defended himself healing a crippled man on Sabbath. My father is working until now. I myself am working. And, of course, the Jewish authorities were outraged at that. And it goes on to verse 18. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but also calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. I bet the, the rabbis that were surrounding Jesus at that time, when he said, my father, would have been shocked. You just... You weren't that familiar with Yahweh. You had to be careful. And then it says here, in keeping with the fifth commandment to honor father and mother, he went down with them, came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. That literally means he was obeying them. Here he is sinless, in a sense, a much better person than Mary or Joseph, yet he submitted to them because they were his God-given authority. A lot of times you are better than your own authority, but God has put that authority there for you to submit to. Because he is teaching you through that. He works through authority in your life. And of course you hear that statement that we've had before. That Mary treasured all these things up in her heart. Uh, you know where Luke probably got this? He lit it at one point in time when Paul came to Jerusalem. He was with Paul. He, he found Mary and probably interviewed her. And said give me, give me one incident in Jesus' life as a child. That I can, that, that, that the people of God would appreciate. And she gave this. And then you have this one verse of Jesus as a young adult. So age 12 to age 30 when he has his public ministry and Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and favor with God. and men. That's it. That's all we know about that. Wouldn't you want to know more? One question comes up, then why? Why do you have to live so long and why is it so so silent? He he, he lived a real human life so that he could die for real humans. If you think about this idea of Jesus being father and what uh, I mean, God, uh, Jesus talking about my father and what that means for us. I couldn't help but think about that precious text in Galatians chapter four. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you were sons God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba or Daddy, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those who are by nature, not God's. But now that you have come to know God or rather to be known by God. Because Jesus came, because Jesus lived, because God was Jesus's father. He makes him our father as well. Praise be to God. Father, we love you and we have praised you that we can approach the throne of, of, of majesty and power and grace and justice with a holy confidence as adopted children. And you sign that decree of adoption with your son's blood. And you will never leave us or forsake us. And you call upon us to cast our burdens upon you. Help us, Lord, if there's anything we need help with is never questioning your love. Because life gets hard and we have questions and we struggle. Sometimes we don't feel like adopted children. But we can thank you that we can go back to the scriptures. And regardless of the way we feel, we can cry out as adopted sons and daughters, Abba, Father. We thank you that Jesus taught us that lesson when he was 12 years old. Bless us now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.